hello, 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 and welcome back, everyone. I'm going to start referring, and I don't know why I I hadn't done this previously, because I, I like the term monsketeers. How, however, I feel like that's very Disney-centric, and this... This episode and and the last episode, I've I've expanded beyond the Disney centric episodes. I'm still doing them. It's still something that's being done, but we've we've gone beyond. You know what I mean? We've stepped we've stepped out of that box and we've added something else to the Ragnarok. Uh, podcast palette. So you listening to this now may not be a Diz nerd, which is completely fine. Personally, I am. My wife is. My children are. But there's more to me than just that, you know? Uh, And this is a reflection of that. So for those of you who've been with us for some time, uh, we skeleton crew, right? So we're going to start from the top. Hello. Hello again. Skeleton. I gotta think I gotta, there's, there's gotta be a better way to do that. Welcome back. Skeleton crew. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> I like it. All right. So here we go. Take three. All right. <clears throat> okay. Ready? Is everybody ready? Hello and welcome back. Skeleton crew to another Radnorock retrospective podcast where we are diving into everything you didn't know you wanted to know about Plan 9 from Outer Space. Now, if you haven't already, you may want to consider going over to LealLegacy.com and venturing over to our... um cringe cinema commentaries under the commentaries tab on our website and uh, watch the commentary for plan nine from outer space or do it after either way. Definitely watch it. Definitely watch it with my commentary over it because it's that's, that's the companion podcast to this podcast it's a set they go together and there will be if there isn't already depending on when you listen to this a plan nine from outer space skeleton crew tee or hoodie or whatever a a plan nine from outer space inspired design available on our website as well uh yeah, so here we are. Here we are. If you've seen the film already, and you know what? Even if you've just watched it without my commentary, I almost said I don't know why you would, but of course I know why you would. Why wouldn't you? It's a fun movie. It's a fun movie with one of the most fun premises ever. Uh, if you're new to the podcast and the Leal Legacy Verse. Uh, my name is Justin. Hello. Hi. Justin Leal. The Legacy of Leals. Well, 
I, I have children, so I guess they're the legacy now. I'm the buffer. I'm the buffer between between the two um, lineages. Is that the correct phrase? I don't know. Anyway, yeah, we're diving we're diving deep in these retrospectives. We dive into everything we didn't know we wanted to know. And I know I've already said that, but I'm a little hyped up on cold brew. It's eleven sixteen p.m. It's probably not going to do super well for my sleep tonight. And I have MMA training in the morning. It's just going to be a, a, a mess. But you know what? You know what? We'll survive. We always do. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, here we go. So let's get into it, right? Right. Um, I will start... I suppose, you know, let's just get into it. Let's get into the, the, the meat of it. Let's get into the nitty gritty. And I can already tell you that the uh, shirt or hoodie, like whatever, the design, the skeleton crew, the Plan 9 from Outer Space inspired design is uh, based off the poster. So if you want an idea of what it looks like, there you are. So here we go. Plan 9 from Outer Space is a 1957 American independent science fiction horror film produced, written, directed, and edited by Ed Wood. Now, that's a lot of hats for one man to wear. And I admire that. I admire that. Ed Wood has a reputation of being... A, a, an, an eccentric for one and a, uh, uh, an arguably poor filmmaker. And I say that with reluctance and I say that with hesitation and I say that with kind of a little bit of disgust because did you hear what I just said? Produced, written, directed, and edited by Edward. Now that's kind of how I approach things. You know what I mean? Um, that's how I approach any sort of video content that I've ever been a part of. Uh, I don't play well with others. <laughs> it's really what it comes down to. I uh, Creatively, not so much in day-to-day -day life, but creatively, I have control issues. Creatively, if it's something... Look, I'm Dr. Frankenstein, folks. I'm Dr. Frankenstein, and I need to build my monster from the ground up and I need to be, I need, it, it needs to be my design through and through. Now, is this a character trait that is, uh, undesirable? Maybe, but again, I'm aware of it and I'm acknowledging it. And I, 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 that's why I say I don't play well with others. You know what I mean? I'm not delusional. Okay. So, that whole little side rant is all to say that I really admire Ed Wood. Uh, I really admire Ed Wood in the way of he, um, to my understanding of the man, because I've never met him, uh, but to my understanding of uh, the, my understanding of the man, I I relate to him, you know, and you know what, and it might be a flaw in the creative process, but. 
I don't, I don't really care. I'm burping. So that's where those pauses are. It's not those audible ones. It's like those internal ones. I could, I could have not said anything, but I don't know what's worse, acknowledging what was happening or not acknowledging it and just sounding really kind of like having awkward pauses. You know what I mean? So now you know. Um, when you're wearing so many hats, it's hard. When you are a, dra- a jack of all trades, oftentimes you're a master at none. And you know what? I can admit that too. I'm probably not the best cinematographer. I'm probably not the best editor. Well, I know I'm not the best editor. Uh, but you know what? I do. I can do it all. I can do it all, and in the end, it's my monster. So Ed Wood is a cinematic hero of mine. Despite what the critics may say, I find the man to be a genius. I find the man to be... Uh, I, I find his dedication, his perseverance, his his approach all admirable. And I've emulated a lot of my process after his, which probably results in my not working in Hollywood. <laughs> that in L.A. sucks. Um, anyhow, so there we are. The film was shot in black and white. However, I did the commentary uh, to a color version. Uh, The film was shot in black and white in November of 1956 and had a theatrical preview screening on March 15th, 1957, um, which I don't recall. I think on my commentary I have 1959 as the year for when the film was. And you know what? I'm probably jumping ahead. So let's just continue on. Okay. It had a theatrical preview screening on March 15th, 1957 at the Carlton theater in Los Angeles. Uh, the on-screen title at this time read grave robbers from outer space, which let me tell you, I think that's a pretty cool title. Uh, riddled or retitled riddled retitled plan nine from outer space. It went into general release on July 22nd, 1959 in Texas and several other Southern states before being sold to television in 1961. So when I have 1959 on the commentary, uh, that's why. Because I am basing it on the general release, not the preview release. Now, if I had titled it Grave Robbers from Outer Space, then dating it 1957 would have made sense. But technically, Plan 9 from Outer Space did not get released with the title we all know and love uh, until 1959. So, voila. The The film stars Gregory Wilcott... Mona McKinnon, Tor Johnson, and Vampira. Mila. Mila. I never really know how to say her name. Mila. 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 M-A-I-L-A. Mila. Right? Mila Nurmi. Nurmi. Vampira. And is narrated by Criswell, which I'm going to acknowledge right now. In the commentary, I say Criswold. Okay. I, I messed up. I messed up, but I'm owning it. So if you watch the commentary after this, get a little chuckle, okay? If you watch the commentary before listening to the retrospective and you you heard me say Criswold and you were just like, did he just say Criswold? I did. I did say Criswold, 
okay? I do a lot of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit cartoon commentary, so I'm just uh, walled. That's just an excuse. No, I'm just I'm just not. I made a mistake, okay? Um <laughs> It was also posthumously Bill what? It also okay. Again, I'm dyslexic as well and I'm reading this information. So Bear with me. It also posthumously bills Bella Lugosi before Lugosi's death in August 1956. Uh, Wood had shot silent footage of Lugosi for another unfinished film, which was inserted into Plan 9. Other guest stars are Hollywood veterans Lyle Talbot, who said he never refused an acting job, and former cowboy star Tom Keen. Cowboy star. The film's storyline concerns extraterrestrials who seek to stop humanity from creating a doomsday weapon that could destroy the universe. The aliens implement Plan 9, a scheme to resurrect the Earth's dead. By causing chaos, the aliens hope... The crisis will force humanity to listen to them. Otherwise, the aliens will destroy mankind with arms, with armies of undead. Now, let me tell you, let me tell you a little something. That plot, that plot line for a film, to me, in my just undying love for obscurity and horror, like B-horror, is such a rad idea. And I I hesitate to say it out loud because oftentimes when I say things out loud, they happen and I get nothing for it. A remake of Plan 9 from Outer Space, but done box office style, you know what I mean? Like, I'm talking like Avengers Endgame level. Like, let's just, let's just make it big such a cool idea no aliens come aliens see humanity and they're like yo these humans need to be stopped before they make a doomsday device that destroys the entire universe so we're going to go to their planet raise their dead and they will to get their attention because ufos seeing ufos is not enough <laughs> to get their attention we need zombies it's just it's brilliant it's so brilliant if humanity doesn't listen to us, we're going to use their own dead to wipe them out. Like, I mean, the, 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 uh, the subtleties of just like the depth of the, the irony even, like, we are extraterrestrials and we're so worried that you're going to kill off the entire universe that we're going to use your own dead to wipe you out if you do not listen to us and stop what you're doing. I mean, I mean, come on. You want, you want to stop someone from killing you. So you use their own debt against them. I mean, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space played on television in relative obscurity until 19, or from 1961 until 1980. 
when authors Harry Med 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 Medved Harry Medved. I don't know if that's how you actually say that name, but it's M E D V E D. Is that not Medved? If it's not Medved, I I it should be. Uh and Michael and Michael Medved. Harry and Michael Medved dubbed it the worst film ever made in their book, The Golden Turkey Awards. So the Medved brothers in nineteen eighty dubbed Plan Nine from Outer Space the worst film ever made in a book called The Golden Turkey Awards. Now that's just that's just a whole bunch of fun. Most, the most fun part about that is their last name is Medved. And again, if it's not, it should be. Um, <laughs> Wood and his film were posthumously, there's that word again, given two Golden Turkey Awards for worst director ever and worst film ever. It has since been called the epitome of so bad it's good cinema and granted and and gained a large cult following which I am a part of. I'm a part of that following. I love this movie. It's it's fantastic. And it is one of those things where it's so bad it's good, but the only thing that's bad about it is that the execution of production was one man wearing too many hats. It was a he, uh, it, this movie was made by a jack of all trades but a master of none thing. That's the only reason why it wasn't good. You know what I mean? Like had had it was had it been pitched to Universal maybe in a way that I don't know. I mean I just the 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 concept of the film fits so well with like sci-fi of that era that had had Ed Wood been, I don't know, more willing to relinquish creative control, there there could be there could have been a a a uh, uh, masterpiece version of this film, which arguably again so good so bad it's good it, I, that could be arguably a masterpiece in itself. You know what I mean? So, uh, the next part in the info here is the plot. Now, I feel like we went through over the plot with the storyline. Um, the plot itself, it just kind of breaks down, uh, us like the movie. You know what I mean? Should we go through it? Maybe we should. All right. Mourners. Okay. Here's the plot. Mourners gather around an old man at his wife's gravesite as an airliner overhead flies toward Burbank, California. Pilot Jeff Trent a and co-pilot Danny, Danny does not get a last name, are startled by a bright light accompanied by a loud noise. Classic UFO. They look outside and see a flying saucer land at the cemetery where two grave diggers are killed by a female ghoul. Spoiler alert, that female ghoul is the old man's wife. And when I say old man, this wife of his 
looks much younger. So good on him, I guess. Um, the female ghoul is none other than Vampira. Now, Vampira is one of my earliest crushes, like celebrity crushes that I can remember. Uh, she and Elsa Lancaster, Lan- Lancaster, 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 uh, from, uh, Bride of Frankenstein, the bride. I don't know, man. I had a type when I was younger, uh, lost in grief. The old man is struck and killed by a car near his home. <laughs> watch the movie. It's fun. I saying an old man getting hit by a car is fun. It's just watch how it's executed. It's it's just very like it's abrupt and off scene. Spoilers or off camera. Um near his home. Okay. Mourners at his funeral. Now this is the second funeral of the film. And we're just we're still at the beginning. <laughs> now we've been to two funerals and we're not even into like the bulk of the movie. Uh mourners at his funeral discover the grave diggers' corpses. So the grave diggers who dug his wife's grave have been dead since that funeral. And were discovered at the old man's funeral. So I'm not sure. There's no there's no real timeline, I don't think, between when uh, the old man's wife passes her funeral and his funeral. So, I mean, those guys those guys could have been dead for a while, like just out there for a while. So I'm I'm left to believe that they had no friends or family, or this happened very very quickly. You know, one right after the other. Um, yeah. Gravedrew's corpses. Okay. When Inspector Daniel Clay and his police officers arrive, Clay goes off alone to investigate, which you never want to do during a horror movie. Uh, Jeff, who is our pilot Jeff and his wife, Paula who live near the cemetery, (laughs) they hear sirens. Okay. Jeff tells his wife about his flying saucer encounter saying that the army has sworn him to secrecy, which of course they would do. They do that now. Um, as the saucer lands, a powerful swooshing noise knocks the Trent's, and the people at the cemetery to the ground. You ever been knocked over by a swooshing? <laughs> if you can avoid be- if you can avoid being swooshed, I recommend it. Uh, Clay is killed by both the female ghoul and the old man's reanimated corpse. He's double killed. Uh, <laughs> so, so <laughs> the female ghoul's been here, but. Uh, now, now, randomly, unexpectedly, the old man is back. (laughs) He's, he's a zombie too. Uh, Lieutenant Harper says, but one thing's sure. Wait, did I, did I skip? Uh, clear. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. So, okay. Female ghoul and the old man's random corpse done. Yeah. So I was in the right spot. Lieutenant Harper says, but one thing's sure, Inspector Clay is dead, murdered, and somebody's responsible, which gave me and gives me a hearty chuckle every time. Uh, <laughs> one thing's for sure, Clay's dead, murdered, 
And somebody's responsible. Of course somebody's responsible if he's murdered. Anyway. Uh, newspaper headlines report flying saucer sightings over Hollywood Boulevard. Now, I think in the movie it just says flying saucers over Hollywood. I could be wrong. Maybe. Go watch. Go watch the the commentary and come back and let me know if I'm wrong. Uh, newspaper headlines report flying saucer sightings over Hollywood Boulevard and three flying uh, let's see, uh, my brain's getting ahead of me. Let's start over. Newspaper headlines report flying saucer sightings over Hollywood Boulevard and three fly across Los Angeles. It's a weird sentence. Uh, in Washington, D.C., the military fires missiles at more saucers. So now there's, there's saucers over D.C. as well. And, of course, in true American fashion. We're, we're shooting at him <laughs> right away. Uh, Chief of Saucer Operations <laughs> Thomas Edwards says the government has been covering up saucer attacks and a small town has been annihilated. Annihilated. <laughs> Chief of Saucer Operations. How does one obtain that, that job? Uh, the aliens return to their sh their space station seven, and Commander Eros tells the alien ruler that he has been unsuccessful in contacting Earth's government. Eros recommends Plan Nine, which every time leaves me wondering what was plans one through eight. If nine is we raise their dead and use their debt against them. What was one through eight? Was one, like, just give them a phone call? Two, write them a letter. Three, knock on the door. Four, skywriting. <laughs> I'm not going to go all the way to nine. Because uh, I'm, I'm just not that creative. I can't think of f five more. Uh, four more? Where did I end? Uh, uh, plan nine, the resurrection of recently deceased humans. Thank goodness it's recently, too, because could you imagine a bunch of skeletons? I could. In my version, it'd be skeletons. Of course it would. Skeleton crew. Uh, recently deceased humans. Concerned about Paula's safety, Jeff, our pilot, urges her to stay with her mother because her mom can fight aliens. That's not what this says, but why else would you tell her to go stay with her mom? Um, but she refuses because she's a strong woman. She she doesn't want she's not gonna run from aliens. Uh the night or okay, so that night the undead old man breaks into their house and pursues Paula outside, where the female ghoul and inspector Clay join him. Paula escapes, finally collapsing after the three ghouls return to Eros in the saucer. So she dodged three zombies. See, she didn't do a stay with her moms. Three zombies couldn't even catch her. Uh, at the Pentagon, General Roberts tells Edwards that aliens have been telling the government that they are trying to prevent humanity from destroying the universe. But I thought that they couldn't make contact. Anyway, Robert sends Edwards to San Fernando, where most of the alien activity has occurred. Because, yeah, the San, San Fernando Valley. If I was an alien, that's where I would attack. Uh, Clay attacks Eros, nearly killing him. So 
now the zombies are turning on their their the rear their reanimators. Uh, after examining Clay, the ruler orders the old man destroyed to further frighten humanity. Uh, <laughs> to further frighten humanity, they're gonna they're gonna kill one of their own zombies. I'm not sure how that scares anybody. That just seems kind of helpful. <laughs> uh, he approves Eros's plan nine to raise armies of the dead to march on Earth's capitals. Now, I wish they had shown that part. Uh, I wish it got that far. Could you imagine? See, that's what, that's what would happen in the blockbuster version. We would make it to where there are armies of the dead, you know, storming, storming capitals. Because, I mean, that's like the climax, right? Like, you want to see that. You don't want to just hear it talked about. You want to see it. But given the budget, given, like, the limitations of it, of, of the time... It'd be hard to make a whole army of the dead. Maybe. Um, Edwards and the police interview the Trents, unaware that the flying saucer has returned to the cemetery. Officer Kelton encounters the old man who chases him to the Trents house. Arrows Ray strikes the old man, reducing him to a skeleton. Edwards, the Trents, and the police drive to the cemetery. Now, if they're at the Trents' home, driving to the cemetery, I always kind of got the vibe that the Trents lived, like, across the street from the cemetery. We never really get a good uh, uh, understanding of how close the Trents lived to the cemetery, but when you watch the film, they, they get there really quickly. So it's just kind of like it must be just across the street. Uh, Harper insists on leaving Paula in the car when she refuses to remain there alone. Kelton stays. Kelton stays with, I guess he stays with her. Uh, Eros and Tana, and these are aliens, uh, his fellow female alien, well, there you go, send Clay to kidnap Paula and lure the other three humans to the saucer seeing its glow in the distance jeff and the police approach it clay knocks kelton out that's a sentence clay knocks kelton out eros lets jeff and the police enter the saucer with pistols drawn he tells them that human weapon human weapons development will lead to the discovery of solar night a substance that explodes sunlight particles. Such an explosion would set off an uncontrollable chain reaction, destroying the universe. Eros believes that humans are Im immature and stupid. Well, he's not wrong. He intends to destroy humanity, threatening to kill Paula if Jeff and the police try to stop him. <laughs> I'm going to kill this one human if you try to stop me from killing all the humans. I mean, when you're weighing collateral damage, like, sorry, Paula. <laughs> uh, where'd I leave off? Okay. Kelton and Larry arrive and see Clay near the saucer, carrying the unconscious Paula. Realizing that their weapons are useless, they sneak up behind Clay and knock 
him out with a club, which you can do to zombies if you didn't know. You can you can knock zombies unconscious. Uh, Eros says that Clay's controlling ray has been shut off, which releases Paula, or which released Paula. He and Jeff fights, and the saucer's equipment damaged in their struggle catches fire. The humans escape, and Tana and the unconscious Eros take off. The fire quickly consumes the saucer, which explodes, and the ghouls decompose into skeletons. That's that's the plot there. That's a that's a general summary of the film. Uh, and if you are not, if you haven't seen it already, and that doesn't tickle your fancy and like kind of uh, doesn't wet your whistle for more, I don't know why I said it that way. I I don't know. I don't know how to sell you on this. That should sell you. That should sell you enough on wanting to see this. So here's our cast. I need more. Hold on. Hold on. I was holding back a yawn just now. How embarrassing. Mm -hmm. It's a toasty, like toasted coconut flavor coffee. It's pretty good. I drink coffee black though. So it's not sweet. It's bitter. Like my soul. Uh, Gregory Wilcott is Jeff Trent. Mona McKinnon is Paula Trent. Duke Moore is Lieutenant Harper. Tom Keene is Colonel Tom Edwards. Carl Anthony is Patrolman Larry. Paul Marco is Patrolman Kelton. Tor Johnson is Inspector Daniel Clay. Dudley Manlove is Eros. It's the last name, Manlove. M-A-N-L-O-V-E. Jonah Lee is Tana. John Breckenridge is the ruler. Lyle Talbot is General Roberts. David D. Meering is Danny. Norma McCarty is Eddie, the stewardess. It's an interesting name for, or Edie. It might be Edie. Uh, Bill Ash is the captain, or is captain. Uh, Lynn Lemon is is minister at Clay's funeral, Ben Former, or Ben Fromer, it's Fromer, F-R-O-M-M-E-R, Fromer, Ben Fromer, and Gloria D are some of the mourners. Uh, Conrad Brooks is Patrolman Jamie. Vampira is Vampire Girl, or the old man's wife. Bella Lugosi is the old man and ghoul man. Tom Mason is also the old man and the ghoul man stand-in. Lugosi's fake shemp. So what happened, as we discussed earlier, Bella Lugosi passed away in 1956. Prior to this movie being... Uh, going into production, uh, Edward had that footage of Lugosi, so he's like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and use this footage of Lugosi, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna write around the footage I have, and then anytime I need the character, I'm going to use Tom Mason as as Lugosi's 
stand-in. I'm not. So anytime you see Tom Mason on on screen, you don't see his face. You see his eyes up, and he's doing like a Dracula cape over the face kind of thing. <laughs> so Ed would try to hide that Bella Lugosi was not in the full movie by using Tom Mason. Uh, Criswell, or Criswald, as I so shamefully put it and called him in a, the uh, commentary, uh, is himself. He's the narrator. He's the hype man at the beginning of the film. Now, I I love a good hype man because... Frankenstein from 1931 had had kind of that. It had a person come out and, and give an introduction of the production that you're going to see. And that's basically what Criswell's, you know, uh, part was. It was he he gave an introduction and, and narrated, you know, throughout the film and did a spectacular job. Carl Johnson is uh, Farmer Calder, he's uncredited. Ed Wood is man-holding newspaper. I didn't know that. I did not know that. So man-holding newspaper, that's Ed Wood. Uh, J. Edward Reynolds is a grave digger, and Hugh Thompson Jr. is also a grave digger and an associate producer. Imagine that. So... Here's a little bit about the production. Background and genre. The film combines elements of science fiction, atom punk, and gothic horror. Science fiction remained popular through the 1950s, though the genre had experienced significant changes in the post-war period. The atomic age heralded by the development of nuclear weapons and the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Nagasaki had inspired science fiction films to deal with the dangers of unrestricted science, while spaceflight and existence of extraterrestrial life and civilizations, more traditional elements of the genre seemed to hold a new fascination for audiences at the beginning of the space race. On the other hand, the height of gothic film's popularity was during the 1930s and 1940s. It was in decline by the 1950s, considered old-fashioned. By the 1950s standards, a combination of dated and modern elements gives the film a rather... Uh, anachronistic quality. Pretty impressed I got that word, anachronistic. Uh, so so it was a combination of like the, the 1930s and 40s monster movies, Dracula, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Wolfman, mixed with the the post-war atomic age science fiction and uh you know outer space fascination it's a really cool combo like it's it was it's it's ahead of its time really in that in that sort of way it it was it was fusion it was fusion filmmaking that's that's what it should be called plan 9's script seems to 
aim at being an epic film. Of course it does. And it has the potential to be with the right budget and production. Uh, a genre typically requiring a big budget from a major film studio. Well, uh, that Wood made it with minimal financial resources underscores one of the qualities of his work. His idea tended to be too expansive or expensive. His idea tended, his ideas, here we go. Let's try that again. Hit the microphone like I always do so you know this is a Leo Legacy Radnorock podcast. Let's start that over. Um, that Edward made it with minimal financial resources underscores one of the qualities of his work. Uh, his ideas tended to be too expensive to film, yet he tried to film them anyway. As Rob Craig argues, Wood's failed efforts give the film a particular charm, which I agree. Craig finds that Plan 9 has much in common with both epic theater, uh, grand melodrama on a minuscule budget. And the theater of the absurd characters acting as buffoons, nonsense, and verbosity in dialogue. Uh, hold on. Let's try that one again. Theater of the absurd characters acting as buffoons, nonsense, and ver verbosity, verbosity, verbosity in dialogue, dread, dreamlike, and fantasy imagery, hints of allegory, and a narrative structure where continuity is consistently undermined. Yeah, yeah. The continuity in this film is, is saying questionable is uh, kind. We bounce from like day to night, night to day. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, the introduction and its origins. The film opens with an introduction by Wood's friend, Psychic Criswell. Greetings, my friends. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. This line appears in the narration for General Motors' future Rama ride and its accompanying film to New Horizons, which were part of the 1939 New York World's Fair, years before Criswell's television program. So Criswell was a TV psychic. Um, at this time of at the time of filming, Criswell was the star of the KLAC Channel 13, now KCOP 13 television ser series. Criswell predicts the introduction could be an allusion to the opening lines of his show. A Criswell predicts title card appears at the start of the scene. Uh, but since no episodes of the television show are known to survive, a comparison is impossible. Craig suggests that Criswell's public persona was based on the style of a charismatic preacher, perhaps influenced by early televangelists. Yeah, yeah kind of. Uh, he addresses the viewers repeatedly as my friends, 
as if attempting to establish a bond between the speaker and the audience. The line uh, likely derives from his show and would not be out of place in a segment where a televangelist addresses his congregation. Another phrase of the introduction, future, future events such as these will affect you in the future, was, signature, was a signature line for Criswell. He used it repeatedly in his newspaper and magazine columns and probably his show. Uh, another line asserts that the audience is interested in the unknown, the mysterious, and the unexplainable, implying that the film's audience will have a fan or a fascination with the paranormal. The narrator claims that we, the filmmakers, are bringing to light the full story and evidence of fateful events based on the survivor's secret testimony. Their narration seems to be emulate or the narration seems to emulate the style of sensational headlines in tabloid newspapers and promises audience access to lurid secrets as if following the example of true confessions and similar scandal magazines. The notion that the film or show could be based on true incidents and testimony would be familiar to a 1950s audience because it was used in contemporary police procedurals such as Dragnet. Uh, changing the tone, Criswell delivers the sermon-like lines, let us push the guilty, or let us punish the guilty, let us reward the innocent. The introduction concludes with the question, uh, can your heart stand the shocking facts about grave robbers from outer space? The latter phrase was the original title of the film, but the rest of the line again seems to emulate a sensationalist press. Uh, the film's postscript, also narrated by Criswell, and delivered in the same tone as the introduction, provides the audience with a challenge. You have seen this incident, or incident based on sworn testimony. Can you prove it didn't happen? A warning, many scientists believe that another world is watching us at this moment. And concluding wish, God help us in the future. Love it. Government conspiracy. Uh, through Jeff's initial conversation with his wife, and this is back to the movie with pilot Jeff, uh, the film introduces the notion of a government and military conspiracy to cover up information on documented UFO sightings. This notion was clearly influenced by the emergence and increased popularity of a UFO conspiracy theory, which... Not conspiracy, aliens are here. Uh, but the implications for the public's distrust of the government were atypical for the 1950s American film. Uh, anti statists, what is that? Anti statists is an approach to. Or statism. Anti-statism is an approach to social, economic, and political philosophy that rejects statism. 
Cool. Uh, let's see. Anti-statist ideas became more popular in the 1960s when subject when the subject became safe for mainstream cinema to explore. In this area and perhaps others, the film was ahead of its time. I could not agree more. Uh, message from the aliens. The film contains a cautionary message from the aliens. The earliest use of this concept in the film was probably, or the earliest con, the earliest use of this concept in film was probably the day the Earth stood still from 1951, and it had since been frequent, and it had since seen frequent use in science fiction films. Uh, the idea was that humanity's self-destructive behavior was the real threat, not any extra or not any external source of danger. Yeah. I mean, I think that's just kind of like a common trope that has sort of really just come to be an understanding of human nature and just our reality. Like humanity is its own worst enemy. Humanity is its own greatest threat. We don't need to be worried about being wiped away by aliens because we're so just likely to destroy ourselves. You know what I mean? So, yeah, again, super, super ahead of its time. Miscellaneous production details and special effects. The film's iconic flying saucers have been variously identified as paper plates or hubcats, hubcats, hubcaps, but according to the documentary Flying Saucers Over Hollywood, uh, the Plan 9 Companion uh, from 1991, they were actually a recognizable plastic model kit first issued in 1952 by toy manufacturer Charles or Paul Lindbergh's uh, Lindbergh Line Model Kit Company. This was the first science fiction plastic model kit produced uh, product number 517. So the very first Science fiction plastic model kit is what they used for the UFOs in Blade Night from Outer Space. Um, roughly matching the era's popular image of UFOs, the saucer model was disc-shaped with a clear dome on top. Under the kit dome was a little green alien pilot. This pilot figure was not used in the film. Uh, it's multiple... Its multiple flying saucers were painted metallic silver, including the domes. Uh, two slightly modified versions of the Lindbergh kit are used in Plan 9's UFO scene or scenes. Uh, footage of Los Angeles is used to ground the otherworldly events in realistic settings. So they just used a bunch of L.A. B-roll to, you know, to, uh, to make, to make everything more relatable and like true, true to, uh, true to life. Um, as a resident, Wood was likely familiar with the shooting locations. 
uh, the scenes were the the scenes where the military fires at the flying saucers is actually military stock footage. Uh, Lynn Lemon, who plays an unnamed minister, was one of the Baptists uh, variously involved in production of the film. J. Edward Reynolds was a leader of the Southern Baptist Convention in Beverly Hills, California, and Hugh Thomas was one of his associates from the church. Both play gravediggers. And Reynolds was also the film's executive producer. At the time of the film's creation, Dave D. Murring uh, was the personal secretary and alleged lover of fellow cast member, member Bunny Breckenridge. Uh, his inclusion in the cast was probably a result of this association. So, Ed Wood got... <laughs> He got uh, churches. He got got pa- like minister pastors, ministers, people associated with with you know uh, ba- the ba- Baptist church, or yeah, people minister like individuals associated with the Baptist church. He he got them to invest in the production of this film to the point where they're in it, <laughs> like members of the Baptist like of Baptist churches uh, are in the film. It's pretty, it's pretty wild <laughs> that he was able to do that. Uh, Harry Thomas, the film's makeup man, was incensed when Wood refused to follow his suggestion for the alien's appearance. Thomas had created some rubber chin uh, appliances to elongate their faces, uh, as well as cat eyes contact lenses and green wigs to lend them a more unearthly appearance. But Wood told him they did not have enough time for Thomas's suggestions, which led Thomas to withdraw his name from the film's credits. I was really mad at Wood, he said later in interviews. So Ed Wood's like, look, we don't have time to make them any more alien looking. They, They don't need to look different. They can just look human. Which them looking human, I feel like, almost adds to this is what intelligent life looks like out in the in the universe. Like, we, like all intelligent life kind of takes this human, this this familiar human form. Uh, according to Vampira, Paul Marco paid her two hundred bucks to act as Vampira in the film. Uh, she recalled insisting that her part be silent as she did not like the dialogue Wood had written for her. This uh, recollection might be inaccurate since the zombie undead of the film are generally mute. She gave the film a regal presence and theatrical mannerisms. Her performance is reminiscent of a silent film actress... She credited uh, the wait, 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 where did I go? Oh, yeah, there she is. Okay, so she credited Theta Barra as her main influence. Theta Barra. Theta Barra was an American silent film and stage actress. There you go. Uh, the male alien Eros 
is apparently named after Eros, the Greek god of love. Craig suggests that the female alien's name, Tana, invokes the name of another Greek deity, um, Thanatos, god of death. Well, that's fun. Uh, the Pentagon office depicted includes a U.S. map with a sign of the, uh, what, what is this? The Addison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad. Don't know. Okay. Uh, the same map appears in Baghdad After Midnight from 1954, also filmed at Quality Studios. It was probably a Quality Studios background prop. Well, that seems like a weird little tidbit of information that, I don't know, I guess it's cool to know, but I think we would have been just fine not knowing that that random map of the U.S. was in another movie as well. I'm sure there was a lot of maps that existed with that same information. Anyway, I'm not... Does that sound like I'm being a little, like, you know, sassy about it? Hmm. Ah, again, wet whistle. I was going to say it again. I don't know why I've said that twice in this podcast. Um, Bella Lugosi's last film. Shortly before Lugosi's death in 19... 19- 1956, he had been working with Wood on a handful of half-realized projects, variously titled The Vampire's Tomb or The Ghoul Goes West, which I love that title. Some scenes uh, connected to these projects had been shot. Uh, they featured Lugosi wearing, or they featured Lugosi weeping at a funeral, picking a rose from a bush in front of Tor Johnson's house in the daytime, walking in and out of the Johnson home's side door at nighttime, and a daylight scene on a patch of highway with Lugosi stalking towards the camera and dramatically spreading his Dracula cape before flooring it around himself, then walking back the way he came. According to the documentary Flying Saucers, the Plan 9 companion, these shots were all improvised. Only the first two had reached any level of completion. Uh, When Lugosi died, Wood shelved the projects. Shortly after Lugosi's death, the project, or shortly after Lugosi's death, the story and screenplay for Grave Robbers from Outer Space were written and finalized, with Wood planning to use the unconnected, unrelated Lugosi footage as a means of getting to or getting a known credit into the film. So he used this random footage he had of Lugosi and put it in the movie just so he could say Bella Lugosi's last film, which is, I don't know, kind of (laughs) questionable. Like it's a questionable thing to do, but at the same time, is it like almost a tribute to Bella Lugosi? I don't know. Uh, Would also use the Lugosi footage as a means of attracting other actors to the picture, gaining the interest of 
Gregory Wilcott and Vampira, among others, by telling them he was making Bella Lugosi's last movie. The Woods' actions were driven in part by the desire to give his film a star name and attract horror fans. He meant the Lugosi cameo as a loving farewell and tribute to the actor who had become a close friend. Wood hired his wife's chiropractor, Tom Mason, as a stand-in for Lugosi. Although Mason was taller than Lugosi and born no resemblance to him, making Mason one of the earliest known fake shemps. A fake shemp is a type of body double who appears in a film as a replacement for another actor or person, usually when the original actor has died or is unable or unwilling to reprise their role. Their appearance is disguised using methods such as heavy makeup, uh, dubbing, or filming from the back. And I believe Shemp is uh, derived from Shemp of the Three Stooges. Uh, Wood's first planned, or let's see, Wood first planned to make Lugosi the grandfather of Paula Trent, the film's lead female character, with Vampira being the revived corpse of Paula's grandmother, which explains why Lugosi returns to Paula's house after death, enters her bedroom, follows her into the cemetery, and winds up uh, skeletonized on her patio. At the beginning of the film, Lugosi picks a rose from a bush in f- the front yard of the house where the Trents live toward Johnson's house in real life. Their patio being the, in the backyard and the cemetery being next door. There you go. But Wood later decided to reduce Lugosi's character's importance, making him unconnected to Paula Trent. Uh, narration by Criswell was employed in an attempt to somehow link the Lugosi footage to the rest of Plan 9, but the Dracula cape he wears was hard to explain. (laughs) The theatrical cut of the film utilized every last scrap of material Wood had of Lugosi, including minor sprocket discolorations and film trims that in the normal film would be described as unusable uh, or discarded as unusable. Sorry. Cuts uh, cuts of Plan 9 on VHS during the 80s and 90s, most of which were unauthorized bootleg dupes, uh, varied drastically in both quality and the amount of Lugosi footage retained. (laughs) That's so funny. Uh, coincidentally, further Lugosi footage that Wood had shot sometime earlier was to have been the basis of a second posthumous uh, feature film, Ghoul of the Moon. Ghouls of the Moon. Oh my gosh, the, uh, he Ed Wood was a master of naming, like coming up with film titles. Ghouls of the Moon. Uh, but this footage was not shot on old. Uh, violet, violet, violite, violite, nyrite, 
nitrate, nitrate. Blech. Man, I'm losing it right now. Uh, film stock and had dissolved into a toxic-smelling sludge by the time Wood returned to use it in 1959. Therefore, Ghouls of the Moon was completely abandoned. Um, Mystery surrounds the content and nature of the lost material, described only as wild by a friend of Wood's, who had watched it shortly after it was shot. So the, the, the footage that he had of Lugosi for ghouls of the moon denigrated into a toxic smelling sludge. Like that is just, that's so, that's so like, it's so horror esque, but happened in reality. Uh, it's, it's, it's incredible. (laughs) Uh, release. Grave Robbers from Outer Space was shot in November, 1956 and premiered on March 15th, 1957 at the Carlton Theater in Los Angeles. Uh, the title at the time was Grave Robbers from Outer Space. Yeah, okay. We know this. Um, another year elapsed before Distributors uh, Corporation of America, DCA, picked up the film. But that company folded and it was not released again until July 22nd, 1959. Through DCA's receiver, Valiant Pictures. By then, the film had been retitled Plan 9 from Outer Space. The original title is mentioned at the end of Criswell's opening narration. When he asks the audience, can your heart stand the shocking facts about grave robbers from outer space? It is thought that Wood might have changed the title himself because he did not want his backers to know the, you know, Baptist church people. He didn't want his backers to know that the film was being distributed in the South. Wait, what? He might have changed the title himself because he did not want his backers to know that the film was being distributed in the South. Okay. Okay. By 1959, the backers had given up all hope in seeing a return on their investment. But the new title was less indicative of the film's content and may have contributed to its distribution problems. Like many independent independent films of the period, Plan 9 was distributed under a state's rights basis. Plan 9 was sometimes screened as part of a double feature. In Chicago, it was first seen alongside the British thriller Time Lock from 1957, a film mostly remembered as an early credit for Sean Connery. Uh, It was later used as a co-feature B-movie for double feature screenings of The Trap, from 1959, a film noir starring Richard Widmark. Uh, in Texas, it was seen alongside Devil Girl from Mars from 1954. That is one I want to see. Uh, a reissue, a reissued British science fiction film. Oh, British science fiction, huh? Devil Girl from Mars. Not long after the picture was sold to television and was shown on Chiller Theater and similar venues for years. 
Plan 9 from Outer Space gained notoriety through the uh, Medevs, 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 Medveds, Medveds book because of its multiple, multiple continuity problems, multiple continuity problems, countless continuity problems. Um, let's see. During the first aircraft cockpit scene, the first officer is reading from a script in his lap and flashes or and a flash of light from the saucer reveals the bottom microphone's shadow. Uh, the microphone and flight officer's script are not visible in the original theatrical release as they do not fit the frame for its original 1.85 by 1 projected aspect ratio. Uh, these mistakes are notable only in the film's opening or open mat video transfers. Uh, lead actor Gregory Wilcott, who admired Ed Wood's tenacity in his projects, still had some bad opinions of Plan 9. He said... Years later, Ed had poor taste and was undisciplined. If he had $10 million, uh, Plan 9 would still have been a piece of talentless shit. <laughs> I like Ed Wood, but I could discern no genius there. Uh, his main concern was making his next film... It looked like they shot the thing in a kitchen. Worst film of all time. 30 years later, it's come back to haunt me. Uh, Vampira, years later, call, recalled, I didn't have a decent costume for Plan 9. What I wore was old, worn out. It looks like I had a hole in the crotch of the dress if you notice but i thought oh well no one's ever going to see this movie so it doesn't matter <laughs> oh man that's hilarious uh music the music for plan 9 from outer space was compiled by gordon zoller 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 z a h l e r Zalir used stock recordings of works by about a dozen composers, a fairly common procedure in the 1950s for low-budget films and television programs, but he apparently never provided a reliable accounting for the score. In 1996, Paul Mandel produced a CD that recreated the film's score by tracking down the stock recordings and composers and wrote an article about it for Film Score Monthly. Some websites give proper credit to these composers. Um, radical. That's uh, <laughs> so funny. Uh, revisions in... 2006, Legend Films released a colorized version of Plan 9 from Outer Space on DVD, though the colorization process was largely done straight, unlike the campy bright colors used in the studio's release for Reefer Madness. Uh, there were a few alterations. Uh, Legend had auctioned off the opportunity to insert new material into the film through two auctions on eBay. Uh, 
the first allowed the auction winner to provide a photograph that is digitally inserted into part of the scene between the ghoul man and Paula Trent. The second allowed the winner to have his or her name placed on a gravestone during the scene with wood regular Tor Johnson. The third alteration is at a point where Eros gets punched and his skin briefly turns green. That's the version uh, I provide. We did commentary for. Um, autographed pre-release copies of the DVD were made available in 2005, and the colorized version was also given special 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 theatrical screenings at various U.S. theaters, including the Castro Theater. The DVD featured an audio commentary track by comedian Michael J. Nelson of Mystery Science Theater 3000 fame in which he heckles the film in a style similar to an episode of the series, a restored black and white version of Plan 9, a a home video of Wood in drag performing a striptease. Uh, Wood was a transvestite. A, su- uh, a subtitled information track and a comedic feature narrated by Nelson detailing the lost plans one through eight. Wow. Okay. There we go. There. So Nelson uh, gave us plans one through eight. An autographed edition also came with a limited edition air freshener. Huh. Nelson's commentary is also available through his company, Riff Tracks where it can be downloaded as either MP3 audio file or DivX video file uh, with the commentary embedded into the colorized version of the film. My commentary is better, so don't even worry about looking that one up because it can't compare to mine. Uh, In 2011, uh, Passmore Lab, a San Diego-based 3D production slash conservation conservation studio, produced a 3D version of the Legends colorized version, which received limited theatrical release. Uh, Home video. To date, there have been only a handful of good quality or restored DVDs and Blu-rays. A good quality... 35 millimeter print from the Wade Williams collection was released on DVD in the U S image entertainment in 2000. uh, The UK MPIC video, 2009 Germany Winkler film. Okay. This is just giving us like all the different variations from across the globe. Uh, no, no home video release has featured the film's original theatrical aspect ratio. Plan 9 was composed and shot for the 1.85 by 1 widescreen ratio, which by 1957 had become the common theatrical format alongside Cinescope. Uh, Wood never intended for his film to be seen in a 1.33 by 1 open mat aspect ratio. This has led to various boom mics and edges of sets and props being seen at the top and bottom of the image, further complicating the uh, matter. Wood incorporated stock footage framed in the 1.33 by 1 uh, aspect ratio, including his own footage of Lugosi, which becomes overly cropped when shown in widescreen. 
Turner Classic Movie has since presented a high-definition transfer of the film in the original 1.85 by 1 ratio. The stock footage shots in the version have been slightly adjusted to better fit the frame. Um, let's see. Let's, let's, let's just take it to legacy. Um, some critics, including Michael Medved, consider Plan 9 from Outer Space the worst film in the history of cinema, but others have rated the film more positively. Many of them say that the film is simply too amusing to be considered the worst film ever and that its ineptitude adds to its charm, which I kind of agree. Um... Yeah, so some of this info is just kind of like very of the day. Like a review aggregator, Rotten Tomatoes, the film holds an approval rating of 66% based on 38 reviews. Eh, there should be more reviews. With an average score of 5.7 out of 10, which, I mean, there are, are movies ranked way later on that, way later, way lower on that site. So... I guess, you know, it really can't be uh, in, labeled as the worst film ever if it's getting, you know, it's it's over half. Like, there, there are movies made today that get, like, 1%. You know what I mean? So, it's interesting. It's interesting. Um, let's see. In 1978... Musician Glenn Danzig founded the record label Plan 9 Records, an apparent reference to the film. Hell yeah, misfits. Uh, the label ceased operation in 1995. The film's title was an interpretation for, or an in, the film's title was the inspiration for the name of Bell Labs' successor, successor to the Unix operating system, Plan 9 from Bell Labs was developed over several years, starting in the mid-1980s and released to the general public in 1995. Uh, let's see. The Seinfeld episode, The Chinese Restaurant, involves trying to get a table at a Chinese restaurant before going to see Plan 9 from Outer Space. That's pretty fun. Um... In 1991, Eternity Comics released a three-issue miniseries, Plan 9 from Outer Space, 30 years later, which served as an unofficial sequel to the film. That's pretty cool. A portion of the film was featured in the X-File episodes Hollywood AD, which that really kind of sounds like a Misfits title, but it's not. Uh, broadcast in April 2000, the series protagonist Fox Mulder is paid a visit by his partner Dana Scully at his home. The film is playing on television. Uh, yeah. So let's see. In 1994, uh, the 1994 film Ed Wood is an Oscar-winning American comedy drama biopic produced and directed by Tim Burton and starring Johnny Depp. 
It depicts Wood's creation of Plan 9 from Outer Space. The film was released to critical acclaim, but was a box office bomb, making only $5.9 million on a $18 million budget. Whoa. It won two Academy Awards, Best Supporting Actor for Martin Landau and Best Makeup for Rick Barker, or Rick Baker, sorry, uh, who designed Landau's prosthetic makeup and the makeup for Ve Nelly Nil Nell. Um, in connection with the Plan Nine hypothesis, the film title recently found its way into academic discourse in 2016. An article titled "Plan Nine from Outer Space" about the hypnotized planet in. The outer region. Well, that's not. It doesn't say hypnotized. It's hip, hypmo, hypnotized, hypnotized. Planets in the outer region of the solar system was published in Scientific America. Several uh, conference talks since then have used the same wordplay, as did the 2019 lecture by Mike Brown. Um, cool. I mean, that's the gist of it, guys. So, all in all, in the end, this film is, lives on in infamy. Uh, it's, it's become a cinematic culture icon, for better or worse, you know what I mean? Like, be it that it is possibly or recognized as being the worst film ever made, which you can't really say, because if you've seen the rest of the movies in the uh, Ed Wood catalog, they're all like this. So I, I hope, and you know what? I say I hope, but I will. I will do... Uh, commentaries for the rest of the films in the Edward catalog. And I, I have, a, I, I'm confident in saying that there, there will be some sort of like understanding that uh, this was, this was just how Edward did it. You know what I mean? And, and this, I wonder if this, if Plan 9 from Outer Space, uh, arguably, I would say, has the best plot or best, like, I story, idea, concept in comparison with a lot of the other Ed Wood movies. So maybe that's why it's the most memorable. But this this wasn't his, like, one-and-done shot film. Like, Ed Wood has, has quite a few films that that uh have stood the test of time in in being remembered you know um yeah so that's uh that's the that's the the bulk of it guys and i mean like i want to keep going because there's just i have so much to say about praising uh, Ed Wood and, and his tenacity, 
You know what I mean? In, in filmmaking. But given that I'm going to do what or commentaries for the rest of his films as well, like I kind of want to save uh, some of that praise for later. I guess long story short, uh, I'm a, I'm a really big Ed Wood fan. And hopefully by the end of it all, by, by the end of, uh, by, by the time we get through the entire Ed Wood catalog, like maybe, uh, maybe you will be too. So, Hey, with that being said, I appreciate you guys listening. And if you haven't already go to leolegacy.com and go to our commentaries tab, uh, cringe cinema commentaries and check out our, my commentary for this movie. Um, and let me know what you think. Uh, LeoLegacy.com. While you're there, or before you watch the commentary, uh, scope out all the other killer content we got available for you. I, not only do I have commentary for this film and and soon to be many others, I did, I've done over 300 classic cartoon commentaries as well which i'm i'm deciding now that i'm going to call myself a uh well i guess i guess like a commentary comedian is that a thing if it's not it is now and i'm i'm taking i'm taking that title and, and and running with it so uh you, uh, the movies, the commentaries and the movies are, are free. They're not behind a paywall. Uh, so if you want to support what we're doing and, and give a little back, go check out our skeleton crew store. And since I, I opened at the top calling, calling, you know, I'm uh, from here on out listeners of this podcast will be referred to as the skeleton crew. Uh, go score yourself some Skeleton Crew merch, including, including the the Plan Nine from Outer Space inspired design, which you'll be able to find. You know, I'm gonna have to make a tab. I'm gonna have to make a tab in the Skeleton Crew store, uh, cringe cinema, the cringe cinema collection, and you can find the Plan Nine design there. So yeah, yeah, there was quite a little, there was not quite a bit, but there was a little bit that I did, uh, dance around. Like there are a number of documentaries made about plan nine. I didn't, I didn't really care so much to dive into that per se. Um, more so because I don't know, I just, the relevance of of those those documentary films. I mean, scope them out if you want, but this this is more of a a uh it's kind of like a an audio documentary in itself. It's a retrospective, you know what I mean? So, I'm presuming really that the information you're going to collect in those documentaries is going to be the same information that we really kind of went over here. And yeah. You know, if you really want to seek them out, go seek them out. Whatever. Do you. Do your life. Uh, with that being said, though, keep an eye out for future 
cringe cinema commentaries and the companion retrospective podcasts. I've got a lot lined up. I'm really stoked. I'm really stoked at the the list of movies I've compiled so far. A lot of those do include the other films in the Ed Wood catalog. So, yeah. Be stoked. I'm stoked. And I'll see you in on the next one. I guess I won't really see you. I can't really see you through a podcast, but hey, you know, you know what I mean. Anyway, until next time, folks, thanks for being a friend and telling a friend. See ya.